Good afternoon, everybody. This is Radio Maria and Credo coming live to you from Cambridge and Birmingham. Also a very warm welcome to Radio Maria Ireland, who will be listening in later. We are joined today by Dr. Stephen Yates. Good afternoon, Dr. Stephen. Hello, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for um, taking time out of your busy schedule to come on Radio Maria. Um, no problem. Stephen is the senior mission catechist for the Diocese of Shrewsbury. And this is part of our Maryvale series. Uh, Stephen was formerly the program director for the Maryvale MA in Catholic Applied Theology for over 20 years. But now he's breaking out into mission and we're very yes. glad because it means he's on Radio Maria. And today he's going to be talking about the transmission of revelation, scripture and tradition. So a very warm welcome to you and you. Um, tell us a little bit more about today's catechesis, today's faith talk. Do you want me to give an overview or, or well, just to launch straight launch, in? Launch in. Launch straight in. in. Okay, here we go. Right, so as Elizabeth said, this talk is the transmission of revelation, scripture and tradition. So first of all, I think it's helpful just to, to go over what we mean by divine revelation before we talk about the actual transmission of it to ourselves in the here and now. So um, much of the modern Western world maintains that God is non-existent or at least at least unknowable. But God isn't unknowable or unknown. In fact, out of love, he has made himself known to us in many ways. And this is basically what we mean by divine revelation, God's unveiling of himself to humankind. Now, why has he done this? Well, in the words of the Second Vatican Council, um, putting it bluntly, did it to save us. But there's a more, there's a fuller, richer explanation of what that means in, in, the, in the council. It says to share his company with us to admit us to that company, to come and speak to us as friends, to be conversant with us. Okay, but in what ways has he done this? And what has he so revealed? Well, God does this in two main ways, through his deeds and his words, which are closely interconnected. The deeds manifest and reinforce the words that he speaks through his prophets. The words proclaim the deeds and cast light upon the mystery contained in them. Now, in the beginning, the first word God spoke and the first deed he did not only mutually illuminated each other, they coincided. God said, let there be light. And there was light. And so God reveals himself and his will to us firstly in and through his creation, all that he's made, both the physical universe and ourselves. And this is why the church maintains that God, as our origin and our end, can be known with certainty by means of natural reason reflecting on all that he has made. And that, and that what, we must be, what we must do to have eternal life in him is written, according to St. Paul, on all human hearts. However, that he might make clear the way to heavenly salvation, God also acts through deeds and words within human history. This is what we, mean, we might term special revelation, in contrast with the more general revelation which he gives us through creation. 
In this new way of communicating to us, he makes himself known to our first parents. And then after the fall, he promises them a savior. In the meantime, continuing to care lovingly for the human race, progressively gathering a family to himself through a series of covenants with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David. Covenants which his prophets keep before his people, urging them to stay faithful to these and preparing them for the Saviour who is to come and fulfil them all. And so the letter to the Hebrews teaches us that while in the past God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets, in these last days he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being, and he sustains all things by his powerful word. Now, it's in God's greatest self-revelation to us, in and through every word and deed of Jesus Christ, through the very person of his eternally begotten Son, that the deepest meaning of God's purpose in making us is made clear. We are, as we've seen, created so as to be invited into his company as his friends. But it is through Christ, the eternal word made flesh, and through his paschal mystery, that we receive his own Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Sonship, and we can know God the Father as our own Father, becoming partakers of the divine nature, sons in the divine Son. This definitive revelation of God in Jesus Christ and through the Holy Spirit is to be received by us with what St. Paul calls the obedience of faith. And this is something much more than mere intellectual assent. What this means is we entrust our entire being to God and strive to grow in holiness by cooperating with his grace. So that's divine revelation, all well and good. But how do we know these great things which God has done for us? How is this revelation of God in Jesus Christ transmitted to us here and now? Well, succinctly put, by sacred scripture and sacred tradition, authoritatively interpreted by the magisterium, that is the teaching office of the Catholic Church. Well, as terse and memorable as this explanation is, it needs some unpacking to make its meaning and its truth clear. In chapter 14 of his gospel, St. John, the beloved disciple, records the following words of our Lord. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And it's because of this that Christ must be proclaimed to all peoples. His revelation is to reach the ends of the earth. And so at the end of Matthew's Gospel, we read, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the close of the age. So in this text, we see our Lord gathering his apostles for this very purpose and conferring on them the very authority that is his own, an authority necessary to undertake the task of evangelizing the world. This authority is to remain in the church until the close of the age, that is, for as long as the church's mission lasts. This authority, which is Christ's own, is required in order that the apostles faithfully preach the gospel 
administer the sacraments and make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. I will cite once again the words of the Second Vatican Council here. Therefore, Christ the Lord, in whom the full revelation of the Supreme God is brought to completion, commissioned the apostles to preach to all men that gospel which is the source of all saving truth and moral teaching, and to communicate the gifts of God to all men. So, in commissioning the apostles to do this, Christ implicitly grants them his own authority, without which their mission cannot succeed. What more can we say about the nature of this authority? Well, sacred scripture says numerous things about it in all sorts of ways, more or less explicit. There is, of course, Matthew chapter 16, where Simon is renamed as Peter, the rock on which Christ will build his church. In doing so, Christ entrusts Peter with a specific authority symbolized by two closely connected things, the keys, which are a symbol of Christ's own teaching authority, and the power to bind and loose, which indicate doctrinal and disciplinary authority and the power to forgive sins. In this way, Christ consecrates Peter as the church's chief teacher and the head of his household on earth. The power to bind and loose, but not the power of the keys, is also granted, of course, to the College of the Apostles. Equipped in this manner, Peter and the Apostles go forth, reassured in various ways by the Lord. In John's Gospel, he says to them, The Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. When he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. And St. Luke, in his Gospel, says, Whoever listens to you, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. But whoever rejects me, rejects him who sent me. And so the apostles handed on, that's in Latin traditio, from where we get the word tradition, they handed on what they'd received, either from Christ's lips, from their association with him, and from his works, or from what they'd learned from the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And they handed it on with the authority granted them by Christ himself. In order to communicate the divine revelation, which he is, Christ did not then employ a book. Rather, he employed people to do so, those he chose and sent, his apostles. And so the transmission of divine revelation is first and foremost apostolic rather than biblical. And for many years, the gospel was preached and lived without what would later come to be known as sacred texts. As time went on, this sacred tradition was handed on not only by word of mouth, and through the witness of the apostles and the institutions they established, but in written form also, as St. Paul records in his second letter to the Thessalonians. Similarly, we hear St. John write at the close of his gospel. This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and has written them, and we know that his testimony is true, but there are also many other things that Jesus did. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And so the church teaches that in time the transmission of revelation was carried on by those apostles and other men associated with the apostles, who under the inspiration of the same Holy Spirit committed the message of salvation to writing. But what then? The question now arises, 
What do the apostles do to ensure that the mission entrusted to them by the Lord is able to continue until the close of the age? After all, they've not been told they shall continue to live on earth until this is accomplished. The answer is they appointed successors, to whom they committed their apostolic mission and on whom they conferred their own teaching authority, as Christ had done to them. That such a thing would be necessary is something which would seem to be implied by the purpose and nature of the Apostles' own commissioning, as we've seen. In addition, it's made evident in numerous New Testament texts and texts from the early church. Here's one example from a church father, Pope St. Clement the first in his letter to the Corinthians, written about AD 80. Throughout countryside and city, the apostles preached and they appointed their earliest converts, testing them by the spirit to be the bishops and deacons of future believers. Our apostles knew through our Lord Jesus Christ that there would be strife for the office of bishop. For this reason, therefore, having received perfect foreknowledge, they appointed those who had already been mentioned and afterwards added the further provision that if they should die, other approved men should succeed to their ministry. And so it is through this apostolic succession that what the apostles received from Christ and the Holy Spirit, the full and living gospel, is guaranteed to be preserved, expounded and spread faithfully, and in its entirety to all generations, until Christ comes again. The written form of the gospel, of this apostolic tradition, committed to writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was eventually organised, of course, into a canon of 27 texts, what we know as the New Testament. This, along with the 46 books of the Old Testament, is what we refer to as sacred scripture. In thus assembling the canon of scripture, the Church was recognising that these texts were first and foremost expressions of the living apostolic tradition which it embodied and handed on, a revelation which predated any of the texts themselves. And so the canon of sacred scripture itself is made known to the church by means of this same apostolic living tradition. As a result, the church, to whom the transmission of and interpretation of revelation is entrusted, does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. Both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honoured with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. This is, of course, in contrast with our separated brethren in the various ecclesial communities for whom scripture alone is their rule of faith. This axiom is, in fact, unsupported by sacred scripture itself, which instead witnesses, as we've seen, to apostolic tradition as the means of transmitting divine revelation. And this apostolic tradition and authority is itself determinative for the Church in discerning the divinely inspired text, status of the text which were to compose the New Testament canon. So, those who belong to the one holy Catholic and apostolic Church receive from the Church their certainty about what God the Father has revealed in and through the sending of his Son and his Spirit, not from sacred scripture alone, but from the whole of sacred tradition, reading and understanding these divinely inspired writings within the living tradition of the Church, which comes down to us from the Apostles. I'd like to say in closing this first part of my presentation, something now about the magisterium, the teaching authority of the Church. 
So, this sacred deposit of the faith contained in sacred tradition and sacred scripture has been entrusted by the apostolic office to the whole church, and all the faithful are to play their part in transmitting it. Nevertheless, although all are called to participate in this transmission of the faith, it must be remembered, and I quote Vatican II again, the task of giving an authentic interpretation of the word of God whether in its written form or in the form of tradition, has been entrusted to the living teaching office of the church alone. Its authority in this matter is exercised in the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, the task of interpretation has been entrusted to the bishops in communion with the successor of Peter, the Bishop of Rome. That is what we call the magisterium, those with the power to bind and loose, in the words of Matthew's Gospel. And so we may now return to that statement with which we started, that the revelation of God made to us in Jesus Christ is communicated to, to us in the here and now by sacred scripture and sacred tradition, authoritatively interpreted by the magisterium of the Catholic Church. In the words of the Council again, it is clear, therefore, that in the supremely wise arrangement of God, Sacred tradition, sacred scripture, and the magisterium of the church are so connected and associated that one of them cannot stand without the others. Working together, each in its own way, under the action of the one Holy Spirit, they all contribute effectively to the salvation of souls. Thank you, Elizabeth. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Stephen. Let's have a little bit of a music break. We're going to listen to Bach's Requiem Mass. Welcome back to Credo on Radio Maria. We are here with Dr. Stephen Yates, who is um, talking to us about the transmission of revelation, scripture and tradition. Back over to you, Dr. Stephen. Thank you, Elizabeth. 
I'm going to continue now by focusing on sacred scripture a little more. Um, as the Second Vatican Council and the Catechism tell us, the apostolic teaching is expressed in a special way in these inspired books. For in the faith of the church, and I'm quoting the council here, sacred scripture is the speech of God as it is put down in writing under the breath of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the church holds from apostolic faith that the entire canon, both Old Testament and New Testament, in all its parts, has God as its author. A traditional teaching associated with this is that the sacred scriptures cannot therefore contain anything which is in error. Now, belief in the inerrancy of scripture is something which has been challenged both from within and without the church in the last few centuries, particularly under the pressure exerted from scientific discoveries concerning the cosmos, and human origins, as well as modern historical critical methods of biblical interpretation, or rather certain applications of those methods. How could the Bible be the word of God if there are so many inconsistencies in it, for example? Or how could one believe that the world was made in six days and that Eve spoke with a talking snake? But if we doubt the Bible on the historicity of such things, then how are we to trust any of it? St John Henry Newman is, mis is understood by some theologians to have tried to address such difficulties by proposing that the scriptures were only without error when they dealt with faith and morals. A view which seemed to reflect St Augustine, Augustine's maxim that the scriptures do not tell us about the heavens, but about how to get to heaven. Pope Leo XIII, however, repudiated such a view, insisting instead that because the scriptures are truly the word of God and written by human authors inspired by the Holy Spirit, they can contain no error whatsoever. The Second Vatican Council chose not to address the various sides of this debate directly. Rather, in light of the overall purpose of divine revelation, which we've already considered, that is, our salvation, freedom from sin, and participation in the very nature of God himself, the Council Fathers taught that the books of Scripture teach certainly, faithfully, and without error, the truth that God for our salvation willed to be recorded in holy writ. In other words, they contain no error in the sense that they say exactly and no more than what God wanted to say for our salvation, something which cannot be said of any other text, not even the writings of saints, mystics and doctors of the church. In taking this approach, the Council did not limit the Bible's inerrancy to matters of faith and morals alone, since God may have wanted to say some things for our salvation which are other than this, for example, key historical facts. Neither, however, did the Council specify which things these were. However, the problem remains. The scriptures do contain texts which in certain details are impossible to reconcile one with the other. And also they make affirmations which seem in tension with certain aspects of modern science and history. If God is their author, 
then how can this be so? At this point, it must be affirmed that the scriptures have God for their author in the sense that to write them, God chose and made use of men who employed in their task their natural capabilities and powers in order through his action on them and by means of them they should write as true authors all that he willed and only what he willed. The sacred scriptures, therefore, have a dual authorship. They are the word of God, but in the words of men. That God authors these texts in such a fashion is an example of divine condescension. This doesn't mean that God looks down on us. Rather, it means that out of love for us, he adapts his mode of communication to those to whom he wishes to speak so that they are able to understand what it is that he wishes thus to give them. In the words of St. John Chrysostom, we are thus able to apprehend the ineffable generosity of God, whereby in his providential care for human nature, he has adapted his speech to our needs. God is our loving father stoops down to us and adapts his speech to our infant ears and minds as any good human father does when explaining something to a little child. God's words to us are thus truly human with everything that this entails. The language of the scriptures is in every way like human language, just as the word of the eternal father when he took on himself the flesh of human weakness became like men. As Christ's human nature is the sign and instrument of his divine nature in communicating God's truth and grace to us, so in interpreting sacred scripture to perceive what God wills to communicate to us, we must investigate what the sacred writers intended to signify by their words. For this is foundational in our discerning what God was pleased to reveal about his plan for our salvation. In doing so, we must begin by treating their words as what they really are truly human language. Because of this, in interpreting any passage of sacred scripture, we need first to be attentive to the form of expression being employed by the writer. That is, the literary genre to which the text belongs. For truth is set forth and enunciated in a variety of fashions. In texts that are, for example, historical, prophetic, poetic, and so on. If we do not pay attention to this matter of literary genre, then we run the risk of misunderstanding precisely what truth the human writer wishes to convey. Many of the problems which seem to arise for modern people in connection with the sacred text can be seen to be illusory once the genre is taken into account. So there is no reason to believe that one of the writers of Genesis intends to affirm as historical fact that Eve spoke to a talking snake any more than the Greek author Aesop is affirming the existence of talking crows and foxes in ancient Greece. In addition to identifying the type of genre the writer is employing to convey truth, attention must also be paid to the modes of feeling, thinking, speaking and narrating current in the writer's context. And so the six days of creation and one day of rest in Genesis 1 are not meant to be a revealed timetable of the actual historical sequence of creation, but are rather the expression of the need to honour the creator by resting on the Sabbath, the seventh day. The nature of the world is a cosmic temple, the temple having been dedicated in seven days after seven years of construction, and the fact that God, in founding the world, is making a covenant with it, 
the Hebrew word for covenant has a common root with the Hebrew word for the number seven. And thus, there is no need for Christians to waste time and energy demonstrating either that modern science can be reconciled with a literal six-day creation, or even that it took longer, occurring over six longer periods of time, each distinguished according to what was made during that time. These are things the biblical writer has no interest in addressing. The church's approach to interpreting sacred scripture thus contrasts with biblical fundamentalism or literalism, an approach which arises from a failure to take seriously the human authorship of the sacred books, the writers of the various texts being viewed as entirely passive instruments in the hands of God during the production of the text. This is not a Catholic understanding of these things. What this sort of historical critical approach to the sacred text yields is what we call the text's literal sense. That is, the sense that the human author wished to convey by their words. The dual authorship of sacred scripture necessitates, however, that we do not restrict ourselves to this method, but interpret sacred scripture in light of the same spirit who inspired it. Doing so yields various spiritual senses of the text, which are founded on, but go beyond the literal sense we've already considered. The church identifies a number of principles to be followed for interpreting sacred scripture in this way. The first is to recognize that although different texts have different human authors, the scriptures as a whole are a unity. Why? Well, by reason of the unity of God's plan, a plan which has its fulfillment in the person and works of Jesus Christ. Because of this, different texts shed light on each other and they reveal meanings which, while based on the literal meaning, can go beyond it. The most obvious example in this connection is the ways in which the texts of the Old and New Testament are mutually illuminating. The salvific acts and words of God recorded in the Old Testament are preparatory and prophetic in relation to God's saving revelation in Jesus Christ. In the words of St. Augustine, the New Testament lies hidden in the Old. Christ being the fulfillment of God's plan for our salvation, though, the full meaning of the Old Testament text is only made manifest by those realities recorded in the New Testament. So, Reading the Old Testament in light of the person and saving works of Christ, we can see, for example, to use one of the commonest examples, that the crossing of the Red Sea may be seen to prefigure, to be a sign or type of Christ's victory over the forces of sin and death, and also, therefore, of Christian baptism. What is equally clear is that such texts of the Old Testament in turn make clear the full meaning of the words and deeds of Christ recorded in the New Testament. For example, when Christ prophesies his own death and resurrection by characterizing it as the sign of Jonah, an Old Testament prophet who lay dead in the beginning in the belly of a large fish, only to be resurrected on a foreign shore, and bring about the conversion of pagan nations as a result. So that's the first principle, the unity of the two testaments. The second principle follows on from our earlier examination of the relationship between sacred scripture and sacred tradition. As already noted, the texts of sacred scripture as we know it arose from and were expressions of a prior and continuing authoritative 
apostolic transmission of the deposit of the faith. As such, it is not possible to understand them correctly apart from the tradition within which they have their proper context. In discerning the various spiritual senses of the text, therefore, care must be taken to read the scriptures within the living tradition of the whole church. In the words of the Catechism, according to a saying of the fathers, sacred scripture is written principally in the church's heart rather than in documents and records. For the church carries in her tradition the living memorial of God's word, and it is the Holy Spirit who gives her the spiritual interpretation of the scriptures. The final principle in helping us to read the, uh, the scriptures with the mind of God, if you like, in the, the mind of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, is called the analogy of faith. This rather strange and unfamiliar phrase simply means that when we interpret a text, we, we must make sure that it coheres with all the truths of the faith that we have seen embedded in scripture and tradition. It must cohere with the whole deposit of the faith. At the very least, it must be consistent with it. Obviously, this is clearly closely related to the previous principle, that of sacred tradition. In light of all that's been said earlier concerning the relationship between sacred scripture, tradition and the magisterium of the Catholic Church, it follows that all endeavours to elucidate the meaning of God's word in the ways outlined are ultimately subject to the judgment of the church's teaching office, the magisterium, which exercises the divinely conferred commission and ministry of watching over and interpreting the word of God. In the words of St. Augustine, in his letter against the Manichees, I would not believe in the gospel had not the authority of the Catholic Church already moved me. Thank you so much, Dr. Stephen. We're going to listen to some Gregorian chant from Benedictine monks.
This is Radio Maria and Credo, and we are live with Dr. Stephen Yates, um, who is up in Birmingham. And um, Dr. Stephen, you referred to uh, how the New and Old Testament um, shed light on each other and um, the crossing of the Red Sea. Have you got any any other examples where this happens in Scripture? Yes, there's, there's there's numerous ones. In in fact, um, a man who who taught me a great deal about scripture, God rest his soul, he used to be the director of Maryville, Father Paul Watson. Um, he made the the sense. He made he made the point that I was talking before about the literal sense and the spiritual senses. He said um, the literal sense of the New Testament especially the Gospels, is often the spiritual sense of the Old Testament, that in fact the, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, when they're writing about what Jesus is doing, they're doing it quite consciously with the Old Testament in mind, and they're seeing in him the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. And so they they constantly... Um, um, talk about what Christ is doing in, in, in there, here and now as a fulfillment of things that were hinted at um, in figures, in, in signs and symbols in the Old Testament. So a, re a really interesting example is it helps to make, which helps to make clear a really odd, odd passage, is Jesus at one point in John's Gospel, chapter 3, says that he will be lifted up. He's given a prophecy of his, his passion. And he says he's going to be lifted up as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the wilderness. And I've known people say to me, well, that seems, seems a bit counterintuitive. I mean, a serpent is, is often taken to be a negative symbol in Scripture. You're saying that Jesus, here he is, likening himself as this, this bronze serpent on a staff being lifted up. What on earth is this about? Well, if you read it uh, against its Old Testament back, background, it actually all makes perfect sense. Um in the Old Testament, in, in Numbers chapter 21, um, the, there are these fiery serpents afflicting the Israelites, which, which are a, an outward sign of Israel's sin disobedience, and they're killing them. And God tells Moses to fashion a bronze serpent, lift it up on a pole, and any Israelite who looks on it is healed of these horrible creatures. And... So it's like they're looking at an effigy, which is the um, which is representative of the the illness they're actually afflicted with. So the bronze serpent is an embodiment of sin, and yet it becomes becomes the means of their their healing. Um, and this would suggest that Jesus was saying that he too was to become the embodiment of our sin. He, 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 he's going to look, if you like, like the problem he's trying to solve. And this, of course, ties in with many New Testament passages. I'm thinking of St. Paul, 2 Corinthians. God made him into sin who knew no sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. And when he was lifted up on the cross, of course, Christ brings healing and salvation to those who look on him with faith. So reading Christ's words there against the background of num the, the book of Numbers, we can sort of see, and against other New Testament texts, we can, all of a sudden the analogy, the analogy Christ is drawing, um, the meaning becomes very clear, even though at first looks, it seems even a little counterintuitive. Thank, is that, is that... Yeah, that's really helpful, especially 
um, amazing you picked that example because I'd always, you know, found it a bit odd, you know, looking up at the snake to be healed, con- considering the book of Genesis. Exactly. Um, exactly. I, do, I do actually have a caller on the line. Hello, you're through to Stephen. Can you hear? Um, hi, yeah, I'd just like to ask Dr. Yates. Um, you mentioned um, tradition and scripture. I'm just curious as to why anyone would reject the tradition given the proximity in time of those early church fathers to Jesus um, would surely be as inspirational and as accurate as being inspired by the Holy Spirit? Yes, um, it's a very, very good question. I mean, as a, as a, as a Catholic, I, I find it very hard to know why, why one would. Um, I think it depends on the tradition in which you've been raised. And, and notice I said tradition there. Ironically, we can't ever escape tradition. It just depends on whether it's a later human tradition or, or one that is the true tradition, as we would say. Um, I think I think it, it, it goes back, doesn't it, really, to the Reformation, this, this idea. Mm-hmm. And, the, and, and it's, it's dissatisfaction with certain realities uh, in the church's life. And it's very easy to suddenly look at the scriptures and say, well, actually, you know, I don't see this explicitly in the scriptures. So why on earth are we doing these things? Perhaps we should mm. stop. You, you see, so it's yeah. it's not a justifiable position. I think as you, you you're you're implying it isn't. The two the two have to go together. But it's it's sort of understandable in a way, uh, in in a certain in a certain context and. I remember, yeah. I remember going through this myself because I'm actually a revert to Catholicism. I, I spent some time, I, I left the church in my teens and spent some time then with evangelicals and then came back and I absorbed their principle of solar scriptura. Yeah. But it was, only when, it was only when informed Catholics started to ask me questions about where did this canon of scripture come from yeah. that 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 I that I got into trouble because it, it, it didn't fall out of the sky, did it? You know, no, and, no. Uh, exactly. Is that the sort of thing you were? It sounds like y- y- you have a very Catholic view, and and to you, you can see the sense of how they go together, and therefore it it's a bit it can seem a bit bewildering why someone would just pick on on scripture and i think it's only it can only be um an overreaction to certain things in the church that on the face of it were hard to find in scripture does does, does that make sense yeah. it, it it does yeah I'm, I'm, i mean it just it doesn't make sense to me to chuck away um the thoughts of people that had worked so closely with the apostles exactly so, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and as I say, the, the 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 passage I alluded to a passage in Second Thessalonians by Paul, where Paul actually says, "Hold fast to the traditions that were handed on to you." So notice he puts tradition first, and yeah. then he says, "Either by word of mouth or by letter." In other words, tradition is the broader category. Do you see yeah. what I mean? And yeah. there are and there are two ways that manifest. There are two modes of it, if you like. One's yeah. written, yeah. one isn't. And yeah. so you know, there are lots of things that um, that aren't in scripture, but are clearly part of the divine revelation that's come to us. Um, yeah. I'd just like to end, 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 maybe just just refer back to that text. I chose that text from John. You know, at the end of John's gospel, yes, quite yes. significantly as well, because he 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 admits 
I'm not writing down everything he said and did. There wouldn't be enough books. Do you see what I mean? So in a way that suggests that outside scripture, there is this surplus of revelation that was never written down. Now, has it been lost or has it come down to us in other ways? Well, we would say it's come down in other ways, you know, um, through through liturgy, through creeds, through certain prayers, through certain practices through teachings and writings of doctors of the church and so on, who themselves may have known people who knew the apostles or, you know, yeah, weren't yeah. too far away from the fountainhead, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. No, thank you. Yeah, thanks for the question. It's a very good one. No problem. Thanks, James. Thank thanks you. So, thanks Cheers. so much for call, calling in. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Now, I have a question here. It's been, it's been sent in. It's about um, tradition and scripture. And... Um, so where exactly does tradition, uh, Stephen, fit into this? Uh, how are tradition and scripture related to each other? Yeah, as I was saying then to, to James, really, tra- tradition comes first. Jesus tells the apostles to go out and teach, to hand on what they've learned, and he gives them the Holy Spirit so they're able to hand it on in its fullness growing their understanding of it, all those quotations I used from Luke and St. John. And so what, what the church did was, was tradition first. Traditio, as I said, is a Latin word meaning to, to hand on. So, for example, we hear that Paul, Paul frequently says things like, what I received, I in turn handed on. And he's not talking about anything in writing. He's talking about a living transmission, person to person. Um, And it's only after a certain time that things start to get written down. But even then, they're not written down in order to be compiled into a book. That's the rule of life, the rule of faith, sorry. So probably one of the first things to be written down is the first letter to the Thessalonians in about AD 50, you know, Mark's Gospels sometime during the mid-60s, this kind of thing. And there were many, many, many texts circulating Uh, much more than the 27 that we have now. And at some point, a decision had to be made. Now, which of these are genuinely inspired? Which of these are part of the apostolic tradition? And which of them are not? Because there were all sorts of strange alternative gospels starting to circulate. And this was a very practical problem because um, one of the things that the Romans did to try and get you to commit apostasy was to to, was to burn your sacred books and some christians would take some scrolls if you like um that they didn't think much of and burn them to satisfy the romans and so the question became well what can we burn and what can't we burn it's a very practical pragmatic way of of sort of uh, deciding what to work out is 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 from the lord and and, and what might be of merely human origin and in fact the canon of 27 books wasn't settled on until about the late fourth early fifth century so you've got four or five centuries where the rule of faith is not the New Testament. The rule of faith is apostolic tradition, as this is being handed on from apostolic successor to apostolic successor, um, and also in writings, but a collection of writings that was scattered in a bit of a state of flux with regard to its, its status. So the relationship between the two of them really is tradition is prior Scripture is part of tradition. It's a particularly privileged part of tradition because it's judged to be divinely authored, unlike um, other parts of tradition, like the 
uh, pronouncements of councils and so on, which are guarded from fallibility, but not divinely inspired. And nevertheless, the context for, re for correctly reading scripture is in light of the church's tradition. Putting it crudely, scripture is the church's book, and it's only read correctly when it's read by the church. I think one of the church fathers, it might have been Tertullian, said that um, it, when a heretic uses the scriptures to try and refute Catholic teaching, he doesn't even have a right to use them because they're not his book. <laughs> Interesting. Um, thank you for that. In fact, we have a caller and I'm going to put them straight on air. You're through to um, Dr. Yates. Thank you for calling. Do you have a question? Yeah. Um, first of all, Dr. Yates, uh, if I'm talking directly to it, a very interesting program. Um, just, it, it, it's a difficult question and, um, uh, and I struggle with it. But, you know, as being brought up a Catholic, got to Catholic schools and gone to Medjugorje and Lourdes and all that sort of stuff. And it's it, uh, the worship of Mary and finding my faith in Scripture and what he said, St. Augustine, what St. Augustine said, Scripture is the author, is primarily the author of the faith. And when I study Scripture, I, I look at the worship of Mary and I can't find it in Scripture. And uh, I... I I really enjoy reading the scripture and especially the Old Testament and the, and the New Testament. And it's such a wonderful book because it, it, it lightens up your eyes. But I still struggle with the area of the wor in, in the worship of, of the Virgin Mary. So I wondered whether he could answer that question and help me and maybe other people who have these struggles. The Catholic Church would say that um, it doesn't worship the Virgin Mary it venerates her. There's a, a sort of traditional distinction between Latria and Dulcia, and um, one of them is worship, which can only be given to God Himself, and the other is respect or veneration, mm. which can be mm. given to, which can be given to human human beings, mm. and. Um, the type of veneration that's given to Our Lady is of the latter. It's the highest type that can be given to a human being because of her being the mother of God. Um, but the church has always taught that Our Lady herself, that the people haven't gone, got to, um, how can I put it, become so Marian that it becomes unbalanced. I mean, Paul VI himself wrote a, a very beautiful document in the 70s called Marialis Cultus, um, where he was, he, and it was essentially on the correct ordering of devotion to the Blessed Virgin. In other words, how it should be done, how it shouldn't. Um, in Scripture, uh, did, did you hear some of the talk I was giving earlier about the unity of the, the Testaments and so on? Um, uh you know, I I just caught a bit of that. Came on from came over work, so it's a big one. Heard you, which is great. Yeah, well, no, one, of, one, one of the one of the one of the, the the best books I've ever read, which 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 would which would help in this regard. And I would strongly recommend you get it. Is called Hail Holy Queen, and it's by a man called Scott Hahn. And Scott Hahn was a Presbyterian scholar who converted to Catholicism, and his particular genius is doing exegesis on scripture to show where 
um, what we might call characteristic Catholic teachings, such as what the ones you're talking about, are are implicit. And once you understand the texts, they can, you know, they they it, they they really, you actually see. Yes, this is a biblically rooted um, doctrine. One one of the things that helps, uh, just to take a, a particular example, is. Paul, St. Paul himself is quite clear that Jesus is um, is the second Adam, come to rectify the fall to the first. Now, straight away, just from reading Paul, then your 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 the, the issue arises. Well, is is there a second Eve? Well, the fathers of the church; these are people who them who who had apostles as their own teachers. People like this in the second century, people like Ignatius of Antioch, Irenaeus. Um, they they drew out this implication, said, okay, yes, she's the second Eve. And you can find prayers to her going back as early as the second century. Um, John Henry Newman talked about um, that if she's the second Eve, then she would have to be sinless because Eve herself was sinless. Do you see what I mean? And so on. So you won't find explicit Marian dogma just written down on the pages of, of the New Testament for, for certain things. In other cases, I would say it's it's quite near the surface. But, but that doesn't matter because um, Christ gave his Holy Spirit to the apostles and said, the Spirit will lead you into the fullness of the truth. In other words, our understanding of what's been revealed once and forever in, Je once and forever in Jesus Christ grows, not because scripture is substantially added to, but because our understanding of the deposit of the faith deepens as we allow the spirit to, to read it correctly. And, and all the church's teaching about Our Lady, I, I would say, and, and this is why I recommend this book, can be, can be found in scripture if you read it as scripture is supposed to be read, which is, which is within the context where it was produced. You know, it's the church's book. The church wrote it, the church edited it, the church decided which 27 books went into it. Um, and so the authority of the church is necessary in reading it scripture correctly. Um, thank you so much. I hope that's helped. Um, I'm yeah, good. Thank you. Thank you so much for thank your you. call. Um, I'm afraid we have run out of time for today. But um, Dr. Stephen, could you just finish with a very short prayer? Yes. Well, given that that gentleman asked about Our Lady, I thought if we normally are extemporized, but I feel that uh, I'd like to say the Hail Mary and I'd like to offer this Hail Mary up for the gentleman who, who called in, raising those very important questions, questions that when I returned to the Catholic faith were very much on my mind and that I wanted addressing. And over the years, I found that the Catholic Church has managed to satisfactorily answer. And I hope he and any other people who are struggling with some of the church's teachings can 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 be open-minded and open open enough to the spirit to uh, to allow uh, the spirit to lead them to see that the the church is to be trusted in what she's handed on to us from the apostles and how we now understand it in all its fullness and so we ask our lady seat of wisdom to bless us all with that wisdom so that we can accept the fullness of the catholic faith Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Stephen Yates. We very much look forward to welcoming you back on Radio Maria 
in the future.